0: I will be forever the myth You're the king of kings. The <laughs> <laughs> There's always a pecking order. the little peckers never mess with the big peckle. So I'm a rooster, and he's a chicken me. This episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast is brought to you by our Patreon sponsors. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon sponsor for the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, Just go to our official website, which is bodybuildinglegendshow.com, and in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a link to become a Patreon sponsor yourself. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, where we talk to the legends of bodybuilding, and we also talk about the history of bodybuilding. I'm your host, John Hanson. On today's show, we do not have any guests, so I thought I would go back to the old bodybuilding magazines and read some articles from some old bodybuilding magazines. There's a wealth of information out there. Some really, really great stuff. So I thought I would share it with you guys. I think this is our sixth episode with the bodybuilding magazine. So I'll keep these going whenever we don't have guests just to share these great articles with you guys. I'm still working on my bodybuilding history book and I am up to the year 1977. So I was going through a lot of my old magazines and reading some of these articles. And man, there was some really great stuff, especially. Two of the guys I'm going to be sharing with you today is Rick Wayne, of course, and Jack Neary, who were both writing for Muscle Builder Magazine back in 1977, and they had some great articles. I also got some articles by Armand Tanny and a couple other guys, but Rick and Jack are like a couple of the articles that I'm reading today, and I I definitely wanted to share them because they had some really great stuff. Those guys were such great writers. Man, I miss those days of bodybuilding when we could read these great writers like, Rick and Jack every month in the magazine. They were long articles too. It was really, really some great stuff, but it's all gone now because the magazines no longer exist. So that great reporting that people like Jack Neary and Rick Wayne were doing every month in the magazines, the great profile pieces, the contest reports, all of that, unfortunately is long gone and has been replaced with the age of the internet. So now we get to see YouTube videos by people who may or may not know what they're talking about. All right. I hate to start off with some bad news, but we did lose the great Lisa Lyon just this last week. Lisa passed away from pancreatic cancer. She was 70 years old. And of course, a real pioneer in the world of bodybuilding, women's bodybuilding. She was the one who really got it all started. Without her, there probably wouldn't be no women's bodybuilding. So she was amazing. Amazing person. Did not have a really big muscular physique, but she was a beautiful woman and she really captivated a lot of people and got people interested in this sport of women's bodybuilding or getting women interested in lifting weights in the first place, which it was unheard of back then because women were afraid that if they lifted weights, they would get really masculine, develop these huge muscles. And Lisa led the way by showing that how beautiful and artistic and gorgeous a woman could be with bodybuilding. So there was a lot of mentions of this on social media, on Facebook. But two I wanted to read was Rachel McLish. Rachel, the first Miss Olympia winner in 1980 and also in 1982, really one of the, again, one of the pioneers of women's bodybuilding. Rachel is still adored by women today. They just love her look. And she is the reason that so many women got involved in women's bodybuilding or in lifting weights. So Rachel made a little post on her Facebook page. It said, I knew Lisa Lyon was not well, but it's still such a sad, empty shock when they finally leave. Lisa was truly the real pioneer for women's bodybuilding and my sole inspiration for stepping onto the women's bodybuilding competitive stage. She was almost embarrassed when I tell her she was much loved and important, not only to me, but also the millions of women she touched. Thank you, Lisa, for giving me women's bodybuilding on a silver platter. You were always so supportive, gentle, super intelligent, and kind. I am forever grateful. May the Lord Jesus Christ embrace you. Rest easy, my friend. And another one I wanted to share with you was Roger Schwab. Roger was around during those days when Lisa started off. And Roger is a great writer himself, so I wanted to read his tribute. It says, goodbye, Maplethorpe's lady. I had never seen a woman like that before. It was like looking at someone from another planet. Robert Maplethorpe, And loving tribute to you, Lisa Lyon. You were the brilliant radiance of our world. You were the opening hymn. The first voice taking the first step into the unexplored landscape where the feminine foot had yet to place down. And you were the grace that allowed the fearful yet courageous early few to follow your footsteps into the light. You ushered in a promise of a brave new generation, one of breaking chains, of dignity and resolute empowerment. You exemplified the strength of a woman. As the eyes of the world slowly and uneasily opened to the births of women bodybuilding, your countenance stood above, alone, strong, undaunted. You faced a new world and seamlessly entered and flowed into the mix and into an instant of untouched aura, the momentous moments of a wonder kind, bonds forged strong enough never to bend. Yet you were prescient of the deep future which foreshadowed man-made substances desecrating the intended purity of the endeavor. At the crest of your pinnacle, you escaped and were captured by the lens of an artist who could not help but adore you. The collaboration of the artist and the woman, Mapplethorpe-Lyon, resulted in a succession of fantasies where the woman escaped the shackles of a demeaning womanly stereotype, transforming her body into a symbol of female strength. Sir Elton, in words reserved only for the pantheon of the extraordinary, said it best, For you, Lisa, your candle burned out long before your legend ever will. Epilogue. I hope to once again feel the grains beneath my feet on those golden sands of Muscle Beach where we said hello and then close my eyes and bid farewell to that white boat in the sand which takes you to your final and finest journey home. A sincere thank you to John Balick whose photo in itself tells the story. Wow, was that beautiful or what? Thank you, Roger. What a Fantastic tribute to Lisa Lyon, and uh, so well said. Man, that was beautiful. And I have to mention also Rick Wayne commented on one of the threads that I read, and he said, did Lisa leave bodybuilding, or did bodybuilding leave Lisa? <laughs> said as only Rick could say it. Yeah, she definitely led the way, and unfortunately, it, it turned into what it has now become, which a lot of people don't like, and the, the use of anabolic steroids does not belong in women's bodybuilding, or in any of these women's categories, in my opinion. But unfortunately, it has invaded the sport and probably will never go away. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed our sixth anniversary specials. We had three of them the last few episodes. I hope you enjoyed them. I didn't get any emails from last week's episode, but I hope you guys liked it. I did do an interview with Steve Weinberger. Actually, that was about a month ago I did it with Steve. It was on the podcast, I think in early August, I think it was the second week in August, maybe. But I finally got the video portion of our interview up. I did that just this last week. So I got a lot of comments on that. So I wanted to read some of these comments that I got. This one from Andre said, it's good to see that his gym survived the COVID fiasco. So many businesses lost everything. The Spritz said, John, it would be great to do a part two with Steve on a list of the worst or most terrible people in the sport or the biggest controversies. Beatman said, I can't wait to hear this during my shift at work. I love the podcast. Mark said, great podcast. Zane Zeminski said, I was at the 1974 Mr. Olympia when Arnold was at his absolute best. I like the Lee Haney look over Dorian Yates look, as Steve stated. Currently, Bumstead has the look that I prefer over the more massive look. Nice interview, John. Edward said, it seems that in my limited experience, particularly in the Pittsburgh-based NPC national shows, That mass is paramount, even in the face of superior shape and conditioning. Also, GH insulin abdomens and gynecomastia are more tolerated. Jay Cutler himself made a comment. He said, this is gold. Phillips said, first class, John. Mike said, eight time, Mr. Olympia Lee Haney, 31 inch waist, 31 inch size, 20 inch calves, 20 inch arms, 20 inch neck at a weight of 250 pounds. Give it, take most balanced out. Lee said, nice one. Piazza said the Australian guy might have been Graham Lansfield. Okay. So we mentioned in the interview, Steve was talking about how Bev Francis was trained by somebody in Australia before she came to America and appeared in the movie Pumping Iron 2. So we were trying to figure out who it was. I thought it might have been Roger Walker. He said it wasn't John Torelli. But now thanks to Piazza here, he said the Australian guy might have been Graham Lansfield. That makes sense because Graham was around during that time, and he was competing in the Mr. Universe. Mike said, to be honest, I don't enjoy the open men's bodybuilding as much. I prefer the classic physique. I think if the opening guys put more into the opposing team, it would be more entertaining to the people that are attending the show and ordering the tickets live stream. Mike also said, it doesn't matter how much you weigh, they don't have a scale or measuring tape on stage. It's how the end result looks shape portion. Pinnacle Pete said, I remember that Bev Francis article in Ironman magazine, that photo of her doing a most muscular pose, when she was still a power lifter, was absolutely mind blowing. I looked at that photo and disbelief so many times that any woman could possibly look like that. It was unbelievable for the time. Mike said, yeah, but it was better when they posed and the sport is more of an art than because it's a look. I can't understand what he's saying. This one says, Ben Weider was absolutely right. Why they keep pushing size after that was so stupid. Men's bodybuilding went the same awful route. Shape and condition should be number one. Yes, you should be muscular, but not too much. Women and men should look up the Mr. and Miss Olympia. Nobody wants to look like that. Sean Ray, Flex Wheeler, Charles Claremont, Milo Skarsev is where we should have gone. And John Kelly said, John, your bodybuilding knowledge is unequal in the business, and I think Sebum will enter the Open before 2025 just to prove to himself that he is number one in all the classes of the Olympia. And if he wins, that will return bodybuilding back to normalcy. All right. All right. Thanks, you guys, for your comments on my video. And I'm going to try and get some more videos up. I know I've got a backlog of them from a year ago, so I'm trying to, I'm going to try and work on them more consistently and get them up on my YouTube channel over the next week. Uh, I also want to thank all you guys who entered the three-month challenge. I gave a discount on that for the last month, so that discount is now over. But I appreciate all you guys who did enter that. It was the 12-week, three-month challenge, and so I got quite a few of you guys on that challenge, so I appreciate you guys who have signed up, and I will work with you consistently over the next three months to make sure that you make some great progress. All right. Well, that's all I got, so let me get to some of these articles. I got about six articles I want to share with you guys. These are awesome articles. I think you'll, you'll love them just like I did. All right. This first article is called the AFAB Star Wars. United States bodybuilding championships. It was written by Denny, who used to write a lot for Dan Lorry's magazine. He was a great writer, great photographer. He was around in the 1970s a lot. If you follow bodybuilding back then, you probably saw his pictures or his articles back then. I think he used to also contribute to Iron Man. I don't think he was in any leader magazines, but he was always in like Dan Lorry's magazine, maybe Iron Man, maybe Muscle Mag. But uh, he was definitely a guy in the know. He knew what was going on. And I thought this was a cool article. He talked about um, this is the AFAB, which was affiliated with the IFBB, a Mr. USA contest. And they also held the pose down that was going to go for the American team to go to the Mr. Universe that year, which was in Nimes, France. So they had the Mr. USA, which Cal Scalak had to enter because Cal won the 1976 Mr. America, but it was in the AAU. So they had they told Cal he has to go into an AFBB IFBB show in order to be eligible to go to the Mister Universe. So Cal felt it was kind of stupid to go into this because his physique was way advanced compared to the guys he was competing against, and he hated to take the title away from them. But he had to do it because they told him he had to do it. So this was the year also that uh, Star Wars came out, 1977. So that's why Denny wrote AFAB Star Wars, and as you'll see when you won't read the article, he kind of implies the Star Wars mythology into the bodybuilding world all right it says once in the year 1977 on saturday the 29th of october a physique contest was held by the american federation of amateur bodybuilders this event would be a fight to determine who would represent america in nimes france against the physical culture world ifbb empire three men would ride to ultimate victory because of the force the force being bodybuilding, which is the finest pursuit any man can take up in his lifetime. Healthful living is the internal and external field of force that should surround and flow through all of us. The United States Bodybuilding Championships, as they were officially known, were run by Tom Miniacello, president of the American Federation, with associate Pete Vita. The actual sponsorship was supplied by John Barbaro's Bath Beach Bodybuilding Gym in Brooklyn, with 50 to 60 contestants taking up the platform lightsaber to do combat. Such developmental combat was judged by the visual probes of men like Bruno Martino, Fred DeLuca, Andy Magna, Roger Schwab, Dr. Kimoy Voyages, Harold Gibson, Ed Juvenville, Dr. William Reed, and Reggie Harris, an appraisal panel well-versed in picking the most advanced masters of the force. Held at the Beacon Theater on 74th Street in New York City, pre-judging began at 1 p.m. and was conducted at close quarters in a submerged orchestra pit in that theater. The usual height classes of the past were terminated and replaced by the new weight class divisions as the free-flowing lineups of the various events were pre-weighed. Into that pit of precise scrutiny would pour the cream of AFAB training life for the Western Hemisphere Championships and the USA Championships. Later, they would face previous winners at the evening confrontation before the live audience for a final posing attack run to select point blank the muscularity team. It was during this tense prejudging that many tremors were felt within the force. Roger Callard, already qualified for the giant pose down, strode the aisles of the beacon at this time, clad in a heavy trench coat, uneasy and somewhat nervous, talking and trying to assume a friendly air. Kelman Scalak, 1976, AU Mr. America, who had entered the USA heavyweight division, sat outside the pit, pensive and meditating with other contestants, John Burkholder and David Mastarakis. Frank Zane, the new Mr. Olympia, and wife Christine leaned precariously over the pit, staring down into it, and snapped a few pictures of the men whose destinies unfolded below. Photo news hawks Caruso and John Balick recorded the history concurrently, Destiny was faced by all with a pump and a prayer. At the evening competition, the participation of Ben Weider was evidently absent. His annual report of the year's progress of bodybuilding throughout the world was sorely missed. This was the first time in many years that this has happened. But Ben was deeply occupied elsewhere, preparing for the events to be held a week later in Nîmes, France. However, Joe Weider was on hand to represent the two best-known names in modern physical culture. Only weeks before, they had been interviewed by CBS Television's 60 Minutes documentary news program about bodybuilding. The contest opened not with the expected weeder dialogue, but with ripping impacts supplied by retired champion Mike Katz, now an official of the AAU. He told the audience he had just won a landmark lawsuit against Strength and Health magazine. The suit was brought against this publication due to the fact that Strength and Health claimed in 1970 that Mike did not win the Mr. America title, which at the time was an IFPV title as well. Mike's words stirred the audience, almost a full house, to rousing pandemonium and loud cheers. The next overture of thrills, which was intermingled throughout the contest, was the guest posing. Ed Corney ignited the platform with his magnificent precision fluid moments. People in the audience cried and shouted, the Corny pose, which of course is the world-renowned arms-up shot, which made the cover of Pumping Iron and was used in the ads for the film. A young lady of quite voluptuous proportions later on that evening told this reporter, it's a real thrill just watching that man pose. He is so beautiful. What more can be said of Corny? He is indeed the master poser. Another lone man on the platform was the new Mr. Olympia, Frank Zane. Unlike Ed, Zane looked down a bit, but was nevertheless dynamic in action as he always is. The reason for his slightly down appearance was attributed to the fact that he peaks just once a year. That peak was hit at the Mr. Olympia event only weeks before. That night, however, aside from the one other man who had shocked the audience into panic, Corny was king at 44 years of age. The competition among the bodybuilding warriors was keen, and it seemed to be a general feeling among most followers of the sport that having three winners from weight classes rather than just height classes just doesn't cut it. Plus, only one man should be the winner who will ride the platform beam lightsaber to fame and fortune. Whatever the case, when the Death Star fell that night, only one man emerged for all intents and purposes. Weight class or height classes be damned, for this was the night of the Kalman. It happened here this night, and the phenomenon burnt itself into the physical culture of history books, with a young Hungarian blowing the pumping empire's mind. The scenes unfolding evoked feelings of a heavy-laden sci-fi drama. Yes, it was Kalman Skalak, late of the AAU 1976 Mr. America and Mr. California, arena owner of the AFAB Sky World. Kalman proved to everyone who was the ultimate lord as he smashed the entire USA Championships heavyweight class to atoms, taking the contest overall most muscular and best poser awards as well. Had only one winner been chosen, it could only have been he. His victory was truly a tribute to the bright side of the force, which is bodybuilding. For it proved all of the early year predictions about his ultimate destiny in the field erroneous. Back only a few months ago in July, they had called him a fat thud on the Santa Monica sunlit landscape. And yet when he emerged at AFAB's lands national championships this night, Cal could have said the sky is falling and the audience would have believed his words as concrete truth. He was that almighty tough looking on the four-sided sinew-popping square ground that he made his own. We are told that one Rick Wayne will be eating a copy of Muscle Builder magazine rather shortly, or to coin a pun, a short-order dish. Yeah, Rick, echo this. Kalman had no fear. He saw his goals clear and the path to them open with only hard work. Trust in the force, my boy. Trust in the force. Why? Because, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for I am the meanest son of a bitch in the valley. If you doubt this, one further example of the power of Kalman, Tom Miniacello, two days after the contest, witnessed Skalak strolling into Mid-City Gym and calmly train his chest with 420 pounds for 10 reps on the bench and incline bench press. What other champion in these realms could control such force so few days after battle? One week later, Scalak totaled the IFBB World Empire boys over at Neen's at the World Championships, since his win in New York opened the door for his entrance to the three-man team for America. Other men on the team were Mike Menser and Dan Padilla, each masters of posing sorcery and physical metaphysics. Other men who vied for the team privileges were John Burkholder, who won the USA Lightweight Division, Roger Callard, a bit on the smooth side but whose future lies bright in show business, he will soon be appearing in a major film role playing Eugene Sandow in The Great Zieg Franklin Green took the heavyweight class in the Western Hemisphere Championships along with Best Poser. With the present set up of weight classes, audiences are no longer treated to the spectacle of seeing three top winners on the platform at the same time. The champs just seem to glean their gold and run off into the backstage shadows. This drives photographers and fans alike stark raving wild. For such moments are precious. And yes, they do only last for a minute or two. Fortunately for a few of those moments, a young lady named Lynn Johnson, a Miss Body Beautiful winner, was on hand to give out the various C-3PO-like trophies to the winners. A sad note at the contest was that Ken Covington, who was placed second in the middleweight class, took sick after the prejudging. He did not attend the night event for this reason, but his placing was guaranteed because of the circumstances. This confrontation of AFAB night was definitely a tribute to the force. For those who train for the love and feeling of fitness and later competition, this force will help us live better lives. In spite of the fact each of our destinies lead us to different paths, may the force be with you. (laughs) Wow, what a great article by Denny. I didn't realize he was such a great writer. That was awesome. So they have the results here. The Western Hemisphere Championships was also held with the Mr. USA the lightweight class was Kakuzo Fukazawa in first place, Kennedy Gomez second place, Yu Kong in third place, and Eddie Bates in fourth. The middleweight class was won by Bill Mitchell with Ken Covington, who they mentioned could not make the show at night. He was in second, Rudolph Atkins third, Robert Baraclo in fourth, and then the heavyweight class was Franklin Green first, Stan Blinder second, Elliot Gilchrist third, David Shepard fourth, Most Muscular was won by Bill Mitchell, and Best Poser was won by Franklin Green. And then the USA Bodybuilding Championships, the lightweight class up to 165 pounds, was won by John Burkholder. Lionel Goubert was in second, and his brother James Goubert was in third, and Ernesto Jimenez was in fourth. The middleweight class was was over 165, up to 195. Steve Reed was a winner there. Dave Mastarakas was second. Dr. C.F. Smith was in third, and Len Archambault was in fourth. And then finally, the heavyweight class, over 195 pounds, Kalman Scalic was, of course, first place, Ray Manser second, Greg DeFaro was third, and Don Modzalewski was in fourth. Most muscular was Kalman, and best poser was Kalman. And the reason why they didn't have an overall winner was Ben Weider was trying to get bodybuilding into the Olympics. So in 1976, they started this rule where they said that there was going to be just class winners because they were trying to make it compatible with the Olympics. And I guess they took this rule down to even their national level competitions as well. So that's kind of weird. You'd think they would have an overall, at least the other contest and maybe at Mr. Universe just have the class winners, but they didn't. All right. Now to get a different perspective on that contest, I wanted to read an article. This comes from the February 1978 issue of muscle builder magazine, by the way, that uh, article by Denny, Came from the Muscle Mag annual number three. So, just in case you're wondering where that came from, but this was the February 1978 issue of Muscle Builder. Rick Wayne, the great writer extraordinaire, was also at this contest, the Mr. USA contest. So he gives his view of it, and I thought it was a great, a great piece of writing because it starts off about New York City in general. All right, it says AFAB's Tom Miniacello stages successful Mr. Western Hemisphere, Mr. USA contest reported by Rick Wayne, Cal Scalak, Franklin Green, Steve Reed, Bill Mitchell, Kakuzo, John Burkholder, Lionel Gobert, James Gobert collect top prizes. It says there is absolutely nothing new about New York. Whatever was new about the city has long ago grown old and decrepit and excremonious. New York is a cliche. The buildings, while obviously historic, depicting multitudinous ethnic influences, are nevertheless grimy, covered with pigeon droppings, soot, and factory pollution. No one would mistake New York for Paris. The streets smoke under roasting filth in the summer, issuing a hellish stench that pursues the nostrils even under hotel bedclothes. This is the people of Los Angeles are middling-minded, on the whole, and obscenely young, including sunbird septuagenarians long retired from high-paying vocations in New York, so the inhabitants of the Big Apple appear worn, used, and abused, tired. It's difficult discerning the chronologically aged from the children. It seems everyone exudes the same venomous hate in New York. The blacks and their ostentatious Harlem pimp colors suggest cauldrons of boiling hate, quiet hate, seething, consuming hate. The rest walk the desolate avenues, hating the hate of the blacks. So everyone is a time bomb of hatred and frustrations ticking away to explosion hour. Here, a million sons of Sam's walk the streets. You feel their psychic exhaust all around you. It's in the wind. It oozes like acne pus from gargoyle-faced waitresses in soup-spotted hospital ward uniforms who splash ice water over your freshly laundered trousers. How do you explain you did not actually wet yourself? as you try to order something reasonably palatable from their grease-smeared menus. It hits you with the lingering impact of Bowery Bum B.O. from the wet armpits of hotel desk clerks who cannot arrange accommodations even though your reservations were confirmed days earlier. Yes, New York is choking in a silent stink that hangs over the city thick as a winter fog in London that permeates the IRT subway. Even the buses seem to spit out choking hate as they pass you at racing car speeds at city bus stops. You catch yourself yearning for the plastic Hollywood smiles and sticky syrupy bonhame that pass for neighborliness in television set-built Los Angeles. In New York, paranoia and hate are the popular fix, the opioid of the people. Like the city's rats that have grown fat and their immunity to all rodent poison. New Yorkers get their rocks off on stories that disgust the collective stomach of other cities. Son of Sam will be honored yet by the mayor of New York. Ah, but the city's cab drivers are altogether another breed of New Yorker. Here is another of the attractions that makes this crazy, mixed-up dog town of a city irresistible. You come here once, you'll come back. Again and again. You can count on it. At JFK Airport, my cab driver grabbed the smaller of my two traveling bags, the one with my Minolta camera, tape recorder, and assorted breakables, the one I carry around like an oversized egg, and tossed it into the back seat of his battered yellow shark. Then reacting possibly to some remnant of a scruple in his expansive gut, he says, you can manage that other bag by yourself, right? Right, I say, as I enter the treacherous-looking machine. For some inexplicable reason, my mind flashes me a picture from the past. All at once, I recall reading an article in Psychology Today or some other similarly named magazine about race car drivers. Their machines, the writer claimed, are really only extensions of their penises. Well, by the look of my cab, its driver was long overdue for a thorough medical checkup. There were warts, uh, I mean bumps and holes and rips all over the bodywork, and I wondered about the passengers who might well have been innocent victims of whatever damnable holocaust had inflicted such injury on the vehicle. Where you want to go, asked my driver. 51st Street and 8th, I said. He banged my door shut, hollered see you later at a colleague on the other side of the road. Where you headed, asked his friend. New Jersey, my driver said, getting behind the wheel. New Jersey, I queried. Ain't that where you going? No, I said 51st and 8th. Yeah, but where? In New York. I want Howard Johnson's. Do you know how to get there? Yeah, I guess so. Nothing changes about the city. Ten years earlier, I've been given a tour of Brooklyn, Hoboken, and Jersey City simply by asking my cab driver to take me to 45th Street. It was my first visit to the city, and I had not been careful enough to say 45th Street, New York. The tour cost me just short of $80. New York is a lesson you cannot afford to forget. But say it all, my cab driver was the friendly type and talkative. Hey, you an athlete, he said over Brooklyn Bridge. I don't want to get into a long, drawn-out rap on pumping iron, so I say, yeah, I am. No kidding, says the cabbie. What team you play for? The IFPB. No kidding. That's right. 15 minutes later. So what the hell kind of name is that for a football team? IFPB? My cab driver wants to know. It's a football club from Pele's hometown, I say. We're here to play. Hey, the people I get in this cab, let me tell you what happened to me last night. What followed does not belong in a clean, wholesome journal such as you now hold in your hands. Let me just say it had to do with a pickup my driver made, a pickup who had this crazy penchant for male underwear, and the silkier the better. It was a relief to pay my cabby storyteller off. This was the city that Tom Miniacello chose to offer the Mr. USA contest. Already, Jack Neary was in town. Mike Menser, Armand Tanny, Joe Weider, too, according to the schedule drawn up at Muscle Builder weeks earlier. They were nowhere to be seen when I checked in at the Howard Johnson's. But just as I was about to fork out some dollars at the behest of a desk clerk who refused to believe my room had already been paid for by his office, Joe Weider came to the rescue. I pocketed my bread, took up my two bags, followed Joe into a man-eating elevator to the ninth floor. I have to tell you, the trainer champions had had a very bad first night in New York. He seemed pale. There were sacks under his eyes, and he seemed ready for transportation and a hearse. Even his hair had lost weight. So what's eating you, I asked, concerned. Better to ask what the hell I ate, my boss replied. I think it was a piece of melon. Had me up all night. I'm sore even in my most private orifice. Let no man say Joe Weeder is not all class. My most private orifice, did you hear? Half an hour later, we were in a cab en route to the Beacon Theater and the prejudging of the IFBB Mr. United States. They were all over the place. People, friends I used to love back in the old days of the first Mid-City, which Tom Minichello operated at Times Square. Some there just to watch, many more to strut their stuff in the contest. I spotted Mike Menser, big as a house, practically obliterating two theater chairs. He hadn't come to New York to watch. No, there was business to take care of this time same business that Cal Skalak, Danny Padilla, Roger Callard, and some of the Mr. USA competitors had in mind. But later, Mike called over. Have you seen Jack, he asked. Jack who? Neary, you know, the kid from Calgary. That Jack. There he is over there behind the camera. He's got something special for you. I could hardly wait. We bounded over where Jack the nipper was working his camera. Let's have it, I said. I know New York is your town, said Robbie Robinson's bleach alter ego, but I took it over last night. Just look at that. He handed me a postcard and I looked. I looked but could hardly believe what I saw. In reasonably legible scribbling, someone had written to Jack Neary, cheers, and under it quite clearly was Norman Mailer. Jesus H. Christ, that's right. Norman Mailer. God. Jack Neary had come to New York. Sneaked into New York ahead of me and met, holy socks, and met Norman Mailer. But let him tell you himself on his return from Nimes exactly how he made a fool of himself by losing his cool, losing his gift of speech in the presence of Mr. Mailer. I talked with Roger Callard. He seemed larger than when I saw him at the IFBB Mr. America in Los Angeles. I knew he had been training for his appearance at the Mr. USA pose down, where he hoped to sufficiently impress the judges and earn a place on the American team to nines. Don't go breaking any trophies here this evening, I told him at a stage whisper. There won't be any need for that, he said, with a Callard impression of a smile. The Mr. USA prejudging began shortly after 1.30. In truth, it was the Mr. Western Hemisphere competitors who lined up before the judges first. The standards seemed pretty high. There was entries from Japan, the Dominican Republic, Trinidad, the USA. No doubt about it, the IFEV is a truly international body. Even from the early stages of the prejudging, Franklin Green, Stan Blinder, and Bill Mitchell stood out from the rest of the lineup. The Mr. USA competitors would present a headache, but no one doubted the ability of Bruno San Martino, Fred DeLuca, Andy Magna, Dr. Kimoyne Voyages, Harold Gibson, Ed Jubenville, William Reed, Reggie Harris, and Marvin Etter. They were judges of the highest integrity, all very experienced. I was particularly interested in this contest in part because of the little argument that Scalak and I had in the early months of 77, you know, when he promised I would eat a certain issue of Muscle Builder, wherein I dared to criticize his preparation methods for the Nimes universe. Cal had suggested a little ketchup to facilitate the eating, and I was there in New York to see whether or not I would have to eat at all. Well, let me say in advance of any news from Nimes that Scalak looked amazing. His upper body is reminiscent of Arnold Schwarzenegger at his best. His legs are not quite yet up to par, however. Dr. C.F. Smith, a Menser protege and an exponent of the Menser method, was disappointing from my vantage point. He seemed in a world of his own, away from all that was going on at the theater. From what I was able to gather from Menser, Smith had done little in the way of preparation for the USA. He'd been so impressive at the AU Mr. America two or three months earlier. Now he seemed hardly a fine example for Menser to show off. But Dave Mastarakis was altogether a different story. He looked really great and dangerous. Steve Reed was huge and ripped. Ray Menser seemed to have suffered some mishaps since his last appearance in Los Angeles. It would seem on the evidence that the Menser method may be one of those great on paper affairs that do not always work out well in practice. We shall see. The show was a few minutes late because MC Chuck Lassini chose to hold things up and wait for those fans who were queuing up outside for tickets. Then at about 8.45, the curtains parted to the strains of Rocky. What a dynamite beginning. The competitors in both contests had lined up on a small platform at the back of the darkened stage, and one by one, the spotlight picked them up, ending on one of the show's guest stars at the front of the lineup, Ed Corney. Backed by the music, the whole thing was electric. Perhaps the most memorable moment of this exciting show. What a master poser is Ed Corney. He would come on later again, and one more time, his display would bring the audience to its feet in appreciation. Ben Weeder, the president of the IFPB, does not like it when I refer to amateur promotions of the group as shows. They are contests, he insists. And that is what the Mr. Western Hemisphere and Mr. USA were. Contests. There were no funny acts, no variety spots, just plain muscle posing. And so after the Mr. Western Hemisphere fellows had shown their stuff and been applauded enthusiastically, the MC announced the winners in the lightweight division, Japan's Kakuzo, I missed his second name, he was first, with Kennedy Gomez and Trinidad's UCAM, second and third. In the middleweight class, Bill Mitchell first, Ken Covington, he was unable to accept the trophy due to a sudden illness, second, and Trinidad's Rudolph Atkins, third. Franklin Green won the heavyweight class with Stan Blinder and Elliot Gilchrist behind him. The no-surprise winner of the heavyweight class in the Mr. USA was Cal Scalak. Ray Menser and Greg DeFaro placed second and third. In the middleweight division, it was home for Steve Reed with Mastarakis and C.F. Smith and Len Archambault of George Snyder's gym following. The lightweight champ was John Burkholder of Washington, who improved remarkably, trimming down to 165. Second went to Lionel Gobert and third to his brother, James Gobert. And then came the big moment the pose down that would decide on the American team to France. Franklin Green and the other winners of the Mr. Western Hemisphere and USA did their anticlimactic thing, but the audience was patient. They exploded when Roger Callard posed. Poor Roger. He'll have to decide whether to be Frank Zane or Arnold Schwarzenegger before he makes it really big. He has an amazing back, great legs, but the chest, abdominals, and arms still call out for extra work. Not necessarily more size. It's just that they seem to be missing some ineffable something. No doubt Roger will find out exactly by next year's Mr. America. Danny Padilla was pure dynamite. He was big, cut, and still the most proportionate, the most cliché, symmetrically built bodybuilder alive. His thighs are incredible, and those arms defy description. He brought the house down. Mike Menser has the, well, let's say his leg development, thighs and calves, ranks among the best in bodybuilding. I thought his upper body not quite to be superstar standard. But there was still a week to go. Maybe he'd be more ready in France. And hey, I still don't know about the Menser Method. I'm still not convinced it can build the separations that make Zane stand out, that made Arnold legendary, that made Sergio the myth. Cal Skalak has the most impressive upper body among the new bodybuilders. But the legs? Well, in the end, Danny, Mike, and Cal made the American team. I pity the judges. It seemed to me they would have to decide on whether to give the heavyweight title to Scalak, whose upper body, his back in particular, Mike does not match, or to Mike, whose legs are unsurpassed. In truth, Mike, well, better wait and see. I'm not certain what I want to say at this point. It'll also be interesting to see if Mohammed Makawi can stop Danny Padilla. Who am I betting on? Are you crazy? I chose Robbie Robinson, and you all know by now what happened. All in all, a great contest. See, Ben, I didn't say show. Congratulations are in order, both to the IFBB and AFBB, and to you, Tom Minicello. Jesus, I almost forgot to say Frank Zane was the top-of-the-bill guest poser, and he looked as great as Zane always looks. Maybe he'll start a new Mr. Olympia trend, and won't a lot of guys be happy. <laughs> All right. The great Rick Wayne. Was that awesome what? I love the beginning of that about New York. That was writing at its best. You don't see that anymore, that's for sure. All right. I've got one more contest report. This was from earlier in the same year because these are all, all these articles are from 1977. This was the AAU Mr. America. So the IFBB or the AFAB had their Mr. America contest, which was won by Danny Padilla. That was held in June. And then four weeks later, Ken Sprague, who owned Gold's Gym at the time, put on probably one of the best Mr. America contests ever in the history of the event. It was held in Santa Monica. I believe it had about 30 competitors, but they started the day off with a parade that went down Ocean Boulevard, right in front of the water. And they had over, I think, 100,000 people watching this parade. It was huge. It was covered by all the major networks. 60 Minutes did a report on it. They were there, and uh, they did that report on bodybuilding. So they interviewed Ken and some other people from the contest. And then at the contest, at the night show, it was completely sold out. It was held, I think, at the Shrine Auditorium. We'll get the details here in Rick's article in a second. But then they had Mae West, who was a huge movie star in the 1930s. She had not been seen for years. She was kind of in seclusion. I believe she was in her 80s at the time. Mae always had a thing for guys with muscles. So what better person to bring out than Mae West? And she handed the overall trophy to Dave Johns at the Mr. America that night. And that got incredible media attention. It was in all the newspapers all over the country. It made news programs all over the country. It was a huge, huge thing. So Ken Sprague did an unbelievable job promoting this contest. So Rick Wayne wrote an article about it in Muscle Builder magazine. It's called Showtime, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. Dave Johns wins AAU title. Sprague collects kudos. And Warren Frederick is Pro-Mr. Universe by Rick Wayne. Honest, what I fully expected was chaos. Yes, I was so damn certain Ken Sprague's highly publicized parade down Ocean Avenue, Santa Monica, on the morning of the AAU's Mr. America 1977, was destined to be one fine example of a well-intentioned dream gone haywire. Honkers agreed. I was not alone in my pessimism, no sir, for even some of the current bodybuilding hotshots at Gold's Gym and most of the better-known names a block or two away at the spanking New World's Gym thusly named because, incredibly, contractual ties do not permit Joe Gold to use his own name and advertisements pertaining to his bodybuilding ventures. We're disturbed by the prospect of grease bodybuilders on elephants and camels and gaudily decorated vintage cars and ostentatious politicians in bizarre costumes and baton-trolling maidens and clowns marching to the thumps of a big bass drum. Hey, it sounded too much like some Mardi Gras carnival. Too much like, God forbid, circus. The whole thing will set bodybuilding back 50 years, said one aging Mr. America aspirant with a huge ax to grind. It's going to be a big show for the limp wrist and the Venice Beach weirdos. You can't call that show business, which isn't all that bad. It's, well, let's face it. Ken Sprague is selling us all down the drain. It'll take 50 years to set us back on course again after this one. Mark my words. Said another ex-gold digger. On the one hand, you have Sprague talking about coming together with the IFBB, who are doing their best to separate sport from theater. And on the other hand, Sprague is making a mockery of bodybuilding. Me? I look forward to an interesting story, controversial reporter that I am. I've heard it so often, even I am believing the bullshit. I saw myself leading off with the oh-so-clever line, quote, last Saturday morning, the AAU circus, under the direction of ringmaster Ken Sprague, came out on Ocean Avenue, Santa Monica. Among the clowns were Robbie Robinson in turban and posing trunks like some overdeveloped Sabu, his gold tooth catching the sunlight, far outshining the Ocean Boulevard traffic lights. Oh, I planned to be so devastatingly clever. But we were all wrong, as it turned out. Spragg scored a tremendous hit with his mid-morning parade, and the hordes who lined up to watch the spectacle let this promoter know how they felt about his show, in no uncertain way. They applauded, cheered, whistled enthusiastically, swung cameras from every conceivable angle, some even attempting to participate in the parade. Yes, the fears earlier expressed by some of the bodybuilding's better-known purists turned out to be completely unfounded, as they say. The parade ended around midday, which left contestants ample time for the ritual pumping up before battle, scheduled to begin at 1 p.m. All judges were already in their front row seats at the Santa Monica Civic when I arrived to witness the proceedings. It seemed that most of the other seats were also taken by the 200 or so press folk that Sprague had allowed special passes, friends and relations of the competitors, and a gaggle that were obviously members of the band. Ah, well, I wandered backstage while Dan Howard, Sprague's main man at gold, set up everything in readiness for the first bunch of Mr. America contestants, the short class men. I saw Joe and Ben Weeder mixing freely with bodybuilders and could not help thinking back to the old days when it would be a grievous sin for an AAU bodybuilder to be caught talking to either the Weeders or even to a reporter on the staff of Muscle Builder. We've come a long way, baby, and not a second too soon. Backstage at the Civic, Ben and Joe were talking with both IFBB and AAU bodybuilders like brothers in a fraternity, which can't be bad. Yes, thanks to the new friendship currently prevailing between the AAU and the IFBB, representatives from both organizations were scheduled to compete in the AAU Mr. America, in much the same way that the AAU bodybuilders had competed with IFBB bodybuilders and the IFBB's American Bodybuilding Championships, staged a couple of weeks earlier in Los Angeles by Franco Colombo. Not only were the AAU bodybuilders talking with the weeders about training, They expressed the hope that the two main bodybuilding organizations would come together as one American unit for the benefit of American bodybuilders. Many were actually posing for muscle builder photographer Craig Dietz. Truly, a new bodybuilding day has dawned. May a new sun always shine. As has been the custom for many years, the AAU judges its Mr. America competitors, according to the placement system, which fans of this magazine will know by this time, I have no quarrel with but I was somewhat disturbed to hear some judges calling out for leg bicep poses and right tricep shots and side shots from the left stances. Young Tufel stood out easily in the short men's division. This youngster has been on a winning streak for some time now, and it won't be long before he's among the leading names of competitive bodybuilding. It came as no surprise when later on he was declared winner of this division. The medium class provided some thrills and not a few laughs. C.F. Smith has a fantastic build with incredible calves and body tone. He seemed to give Dave Johns a run for his Mr. America money. When he learns to cut the comedy from his presentation, perhaps the judges will take him more seriously. Johns, who came in so close to taking the big trophy home last year and had to give ground to Cal Scalak in the end, looked in true battle form. He seemed determined to win. Zane's biggest telegraph cables zigzagged his pectorals, biceps, and deltoids. He was thick and a lot more cut than his previous appearances. But many people in the audience, even though they felt the class would be John's, talked ceaselessly of Manny Perry of the tall man's class. Manuel Perry, current AAU Mr. USA, has been making big noises the past few months, and a lot of people were betting he'd be Mr. America on his first outing. And when at last the tall class gentleman lined up on stage, it did look as if John's would have to try again in 1978. This guy is good looking, his muscle tone is fine, and his body proportions are enviable. When he has mastered a posing routine that suits his admittedly great physique, in the manner of Frank Zane, so to speak, he'll be near unbeatable. At this time, as Artie Zeller also noted, Manny needs some more thickness, particularly around the upper pecs and maybe a little more mass on the lats. His deltoids and arms are nothing short of spellbinding. And what a nice fellow, too. He easily overshadowed Mr. America veteran Clint Barile, who appeared veiny as usual, but a little underweight. Finally, the Mr. America results as read out during the evening performance. Tufel, short class winner, Manuel Perry, tall class winner, and Dave Johns, Mr. America and winner of the medium weight division. A popular decision. It must be said that the AAU Mr. America show was crisp, just two hours long and exciting. A full house of 3,000 people greeted each competitor with thunderous applause. And throughout the show, there was this atmosphere of excitement that I thought was strictly New York. David and Goliath and Adagio duo brought the house down with a truly professional performance, perfected after years of Las Vegas appearances. Ken Sprague deserves full praise for a job well done. We hear the competition cost something near $100,000 to put on, and I hope Kenny does end up in the red. He went all out to get all publicity possible, and it seems he succeeded. The LA Times sports page featured the contest up front with pictures, and there was ample radio and TV coverage. Wish I'd forgotten, I almost did, Mae West, I mean. The 82-year-old star who refuses to retire presented the Mr. America Trophy to Johns, and even though I may seem uncharitable, I have to say this was the only part of the show that left me cold. May West, who used to be associated with bodybuilding's top stars seemingly a century ago, is ripe and ready for a rest in peace. Really, her performance on stage and later at a photo session really threw me. Forgive me, nostalgia fans, but I found the whole thing obscene. I feel certain there are better things for Miss West to do with her time than try to recapture a long-gone era. I, for one, would have preferred to see Scalac on stage presenting the trophy to the winner. But that's only a small pimple on the face of a show that was great from the beginning to almost end. The Professional Mr. Universe contest, which also featured a teenage Mr. Universe and over 40 Mr. Universe 2, was altogether another affair. Staged by yet another bodybuilding outfit called the Professional Bodybuilders Alliance with Chris Devins as its leader, the show, to my mind, was anything but professional. In its presentation, a total fiasco was what I saw. I arrived at the theater in New Jersey that is normally a movie house accompanied by muscle builder photographer Wayne D'Amelia and his wife, Karen. We presented our credentials at the entrance and were told it did not matter what bodybuilding magazine we represented – We'd have to buy tickets to the prejudging and the performance. It seemed no one among the roughhouses at the door had ever heard of Muscle Builder, let alone Rick Wayne. But finally, George Schneider arrived and escorted us inside. I have never been to a bodybuilding contest that appeared less like a bodybuilding contest. There were about nine young women prancing around on stage, at least most of them were, as if the contest had been organized to decide who had the most maneuverable rear end. There were all sorts of rude remarks coming from the small audience while the MC called on the girls to look pretty. If they tried, well, let's say few succeeded. Later, former Miss Americana April McCultra told me, I wish the people who put these shows on would try to get a better caliber of girls to take part. They could get girls who actually trained to participate if they tried. As it is, it seems most of the competitors in this event were picked off the street. There's no class here. Among the men in the over 40 Mr. Universe contest was former IFPB Mr. Universe Earl Maynard, who no doubt lured back into competition by the advertised 2000 or so dollars first prize offered by the show's promoters. Also present were Joe Nista, a bearded George Payne. The men posed under atrocious lighting upon the direction of an MC who has apparently made a name at that sort of thing thanks to regular appearances at Dan Lurie Adventures. Later, we had the Teenage Mr. Universe proudly announced as a new title, which it is. The standard here was appalling. I could not help wondering if the kids realized they were jeopardizing bodybuilding careers by appearing in the show. After all, by their actions, they were making themselves professionals and would consequently be barred from both IFBB and AAU promotions. The kids were followed by the Mister USA entrance. Again, Menard, Nista, and Payne showed up. Also, Steve Reed amazingly much improved over his last appearance in Franco's Mr. America three weeks earlier, Reed stood out easily following the prejudging. I asked him why he was sacrificing his bodybuilding future in this strange way. It had not occurred to Reed that the Mr. USA being promoted by Devons was a professional event by virtue of the money prizes offered. He immediately withdrew, even though he realized he was the best man in the contest. The evening performance was scheduled to begin at 8 p.m., according to some programs, and at 8.30 by others. But by 8.45, with the curtains drawn, Chet Yorton, one of the advertised stars on the show, appeared fully dressed on the posing rostrum, apparently testing a posing light. Two minutes later, Sergio Oliva walked on to hold a short conference with the MC. Then it was Serge Newbray who walked on to talk with a small musical combo about his posing accompaniment. And then Dave Draper, still another guest star, strode in. The show started at just after 9 o'clock, and then the least said about it, the better. At one point, Yorton took to the microphone to tell the audience that he never uses steroids like Arnold and Frank Zane, which forced me to demand equal time on the mic to defend those who had been accused in absentia. But enough of that. Dave Draper, appearing slightly dazed, cashed in on his muscle builder past, if not his present condition, and Yorton pleased. Of course, Sergio Oliva was magnificent, even though not in contest shape. He was huge, well-shaped, and awesome as always. Larry Scott was the final treat and was treated in typical East Coast style. In New York, Larry is God, as he is in New Jersey. Let it be said that Chris Devins, whose connections with bodybuilding is somewhat obscure, offered to reimburse me. I had bought a ticket to the show. Well, put it this way, I was given a ticket by George Schneider, who had bought three extras. But I said there was no need for that. As we left the theater, the winners were still arguing backstage with the promoter over the matter of their cash prizes. All in all, a show that I hope I shall soon forget. It left a bitter taste in my mouth. This contest is a perfect example on why bodybuilders should stay away from all non-IFPB organized competitions. Oh, the winners. Well, essentially there were none, but Joe Nista was voted Mr. Universe over 40. Warren Frederick took Mr. Universe over Don Ross. And I missed the name of the man who took the USA title that Steve Reed would otherwise have won. The Miss event was won by a young woman with a fantastic rear end. Don't ask me to comment on her front for one never had a chance to see it. April Nicatra took most shapely, but failed to place in the overall event. Amazingly. Ah, well, you win some and you lose some. <laughs> All right. All right. I've got another article on Cal Scalac. So this was, I believe, after Cal had beaten Mike Menser at the Mr. Universe in 1977. All right, this one was written by Armand Tani, and it's called Wrapping with Cal Skalak. And this comes from the December 1977 issue of Muscle Builder magazine. At the age of three, Cal Skalak was brought to America with his family after they had landed on the losing end of the Hungarian freedom fight. The year was 1956. Twenty years later, Cal became Mr. America. The reason is obvious. He is uncommonly handsome, on the order of Mickey Hargitay and Yule Brenner, two other famous Hungarians who made it in bodybuilding and acting, respectively. He arrives for the interview a moment after my knock on his apartment door in West Los Angeles. Here he comes now, says his beautiful Dutch-Indonesian wife, Joan, before she had even seen him. He's the only one around here who barks back at the dogs. If he gave the dogs a start, you can easily understand. He is stripped to the waist, where he cut-off jogging pants still wet from a post-workout ocean dip, a muscle mass dominating everything in sight. The development seems even heavier than in his photographs. He tugs at his pants and says, Joan, I think I picked up a live sand crab from the ocean, but he makes no attempt to remove it. He's more interested in the 10-speed bike sitting in the living room. I just finished getting it all together, he says, even sanded it and spray-painted it. It looked as smart as the raciest Massey. He also points out a full-length mirror, posing size, with an unfinished frame he says he got for a steal at a 100 bucks. A few big trophies, not many, also occupy the living room. Mr. America, Mr. California, Mr. Delaware, he says, all first places. His amber eyes rest on the tape recorder, and he comes to attention. Where do we start? From the beginning, I say. He started bodybuilding at 17, following an earlier involvement in wrestling, football, and diving. He quit team sports because they took up so much of his time. Though a top-ranking diver in the state of Delaware, he found that bodybuilding appealed to him more as an individual effort, and he seriously got into the iron. He won the Mr. Delaware in 1973, weighing 174 while attending the University of Delaware. Where did he learn his training techniques? Muscle builder was a big help, he says, watching others also. What really helped me was the anatomy and physiology I studied in college. It related directly to my bodybuilding. Even today, when I see someone doing a wrong movement in the gym, I tell them, hey, the muscle runs along the groove this way and comes out here, and you do it this way. During the early years, Cal trained three or four times a week, an hour and a half per workout. I finally outgrew the gyms there, and even the state of Delaware itself, he says. That's when I came to California, in February 1975. I went straight to Gold's Gym." I had a week's supply of food in my van and five bucks in my pocket. They charged me five bucks for my first workout at Gold's. I was kind of pissed, but I couldn't resist. My first day in California, I had to bust my ass at Gold's. Cal's big arms had Gold's oogling, and when he began bench pressing, his power was a startling challenge to the insuperable Franco. On a good day, he would do two reps with 465. Arnold took an interest in me, he says, obviously fond of the memory. Waller chided me, and I knew I was in but they never left me forget how bad my legs were. They were atrocious, 23-inch thighs. Now they're 27 and a half. They're big. As an afterthought, and they're going to be cut up this year too. And my calves, poor things, have come up two inches. Not fast, but they're still moving, and that's all right. Cal found the hardest part of California training was developing the kind of mentality that makes you perform. Back east, I thought I was working out hard, he says with dismay, but out here, shit. These guys were doing something I hadn't even conceived of. And you try to tell a stubborn new guy he's doing something wrong. And why, hell, I've been doing it a long time this way. Yeah, that's why you're not getting anywhere. You know, they have to change something in their own mind. You, ju- you can't just tell them. Cal eventually submitted to changes, the intensity, the whole structure, really. What I did was make use of the weeder instinctive principle and take a little bit from everybody's workout. Waller's, Franco's, Arnold's. And incorporated into what I thought was compatible system for me, he relates. One of the big changes was in his legs. Before California, he had never experienced a leg pump. It took him six months in the West to finally achieve it. I had overcome the pain barrier in my arms, chest, and back a year before coming West. I could work them until they wouldn't move, but never the legs. Now I can work legs with the same intensity as the upper body, beyond the pain barrier, beyond the rational consciousness. He manages a sly look with that last expression. The culture jargon has always been subject to mockery. What kind of leg workout pushes him through the pain barrier now? Geez, today, for example, I started with 10 sets of leg extension with the machine's entire stack of 200 pounds, 12 reps every pop. I lighten the last two sets, do holdout reps, make them pump and burn, even before I start doing squats. Since starting with leg extensions, my knees no longer bother me, and I don't need wraps. Next, I do five sets of front squats up to 315 pounds, 10 reps each. I go to hack machine squats, five sets, 10 to 12 reps with with 400 pounds. I then superset prone leg curls with standing leg curls, total of eight sets, 10 reps each. I do this twice a week. Cal presently works legs twice a week. Two months before a contest, the upcoming IFBB Mr. USA and Mr. Universe qualifying pose down, he will work them three times a week. Right now, he says two times a week is ideal, the legs grow, I stay healthy and strong, I recuperate good, my energy stays up, it's ideal. Whenever I see anybody train a body part three times a week off-season, I tell them they're crazy. Both Franco and Arnold told me that. Cal takes a basic workout, has no novel systems or trick exercises. The intensity of every exercise is different relative to the workout, sequence, time, and whatever. He suggests that newcomers shouldn't try to imitate the workouts they read in the magazines by the champions. Read them, yes, but do them, no. Take a little bit from each and apply it personally. It's called instinctive training, which Cal insists you learn from years of training. Mainly, he does a lot of exercises from a lot of angles, relatively heavy, very much on the order of Arnold's training. His strength continues to soar. Without formal powerlifting training, he recently bench-pressed 520, His body weight is also rising slowly and consistently. Presently 225 with somewhat muted off-season muscularity. He plans to compete at a cut-up 230. Contrary to popular belief, I diet all year round, he assures. Look in there. You won't find anything with a preservative, additive, coloring, nothing. All my fruit, vegetables, meat are all organic. No hormones added. I drink only spring water. I use only weed or high-potency supplements, especially the proteins, super-stress, B D B U, vitamin C, vitamin E, and vitamin mineral 100. I try to cover all the angles. I eat a lot of food, but training keeps me hungry. In the off-season, I eat homemade goodies, all good stuff, nothing to be ashamed of. It's practically impossible to determine the best muscle-building diet. I think a little body fat is good for you. I have good discipline, so when I cut up, I have no problem dieting. I have very thin skin, and I cut up quick. If I seem overweight now, the day of the contest, I will be heavier than I am now, muscular and defined. My percentage of natural body fat is very low, and I've had that tested. Cal has to compete in the AFAB Mr. USA contest in October in order to qualify for the pose down that determines who will make the USA team for the Mr. Universe contest, the world's bodybuilding championships. At this point, the AFAB does not recognize his AU Mr. America win as qualification for the pose down. I will compete if I must, says Cal, but I might take a trophy away from someone else not of my caliber. I don't think that's fair. I don't need the extra title. I'm not a trophy collector. I've entered only two big contests, the Mr. California and the Mr. America, and I won them both. I don't feel the Mr. USA title is a step up. He now trains three hours a day, six times a week. He feels the intensity increasing already, although the contest is still three months away. His stamina has increased. He's pulled in a training partner now, which helps his training. I feel hungry all the time now, which is good. It tells me I've gotten down to serious business, he says. You know what I made today for breakfast, babe? He calls to Joan in the kitchen. I made my sweet tooth breakfast. She gives a groan. Oh, no, not again. He teases her. I put nine eggs in the blender, a banana, blueberries, strawberries, honey, and I beat it up, put some butter in the pan, and fried it plaintively from her. Oh, sweetie, you don't know what you're missing. I put it on the plate, added some more blueberries, strawberries, and honey. I put the spoon to it, and man, that stuff went down. He adds that he had a weeder 90% protein drink after that with some more fresh fruit and was off to the gym for a workout. He also puts away two pounds of beef a day, but six weeks before the contest, he'll stick with fish and chicken. He avoids food three hours before bedtime when he's dieting. Too many guys are depending on thyroid and the anabolics to get cut up instead of the discipline of diet. They're taking so much of that crap, it really scares me. It's crazy. His statement would seem a common concern. It would seem prudent that if one launched a rocket into space, he should make some provisions for reentry. Cal sums up his bodybuilding experience. People can't understand the good you can get out of bodybuilding unless they've done it. I've always had a strong passion which bodybuilding channeled into strength of character, discipline. I think parents should be overjoyed if their 14-year-old son shows an interest in bodybuilding. I was not an easy kid for my own parents, and I think my early interest in bodybuilding saved me. In fact, I think the future of bodybuilding lies with the very young who take to it with uncluttered minds. Uncluttered, too, is 24-year-old Cal Scalak's life. He seems to have it all together for his age, a nice apartment with a great view of the distant Pacific, a perfect young wife, bicycles, trophies, and an income from a nightclub job and an outlook as handsome in scope as the man himself. He has reserved ambitions, but one particularly burns in him. He wants to win the title, the world's bodybuilding champion, IFBB, Mr. Universe. All right. Cal Scalak, one of my favorite when I was growing up. That was three months before the Mr. Universe. I thought it was taken after, but it was before because these magazines, it took usually three months for the articles to come out. That was interesting how he had the exercise bike in his apartment And he ended up becoming a bicycle rider after he quit bodybuilding. So that was a little example of the future there. All right. Got a couple more here. This one comes from the October 1977 issue of Muscle Builder. Another Rick Wayne article. It's about Danny Padilla. This was right after Danny won the Mr. America contest in June. And the title is, From Out of the Wings He Came to Trample Some Dreams, now I'm after McAway, says Danny Padilla. I hope to God McAway makes it to Nimes this year because I'm developing an insatiable appetite for winning. It was still another sad ending for Roger Callard, of whom much had been expected. For the second time in as many years, Callard tasted the bitter pill of defeat, and from all accounts, he took it a lot easier than earlier. He looked so much better than we remembered him in New York, but then there was the new Danny Padilla to contend with, a much improved and exorably determined Danny. Indeed, even though we heard from the grapevine that Roger had made amazing improvement in the arms, previously a weak point for him, and was cut to ribbons, according to his friend Arnold Schwarzenegger, there was no word from Padilla. In fact, not until he dropped in on us at Woodland Hills did we realize the little giant was in town. It turned out that Padilla had been quietly preparing for the 1977 American World Championships for weeks in New York. He sneaked into California two weeks before the big day, and threw caution to the winds by teaming up with Ken Waller all over again. Remember how so many people blamed Waller's eating habits for Danny's defeat by McAway last year? Not this time, however. From the minute Danny arrived till he showed up for the prejudging of the Mr. America contest, it was fish, fish, and more fish. Hell, even Waller was on the stuff, and without garnishing of any kind, too. Danny's physique showed the effects of his low-carbs pre-contest regimen. He was cut this time. More than that, his arms looked like they could have easily stretched the tape to 19 and a half inches. And those calves. It turned out that the new Mr. America weighed just over 165 pounds on the big day, some 15 pounds lighter than on his last major outing. But he was as large as ever. His back looked tremendous, even when those lats were relaxed, and the Padilla deltoid stuck out proud, as usual. Shortly before Danny took off for New York, we took the opportunity to grill him at Weider International. I will not be responsible for anything I say right now, he began. I'm still drunk. He wasn't, of course. But judging strictly from what this reporter learned from Jack Neary, who apparently partied with Waller, Dan Howard, and the new Mr. America, all of them remembered Saturday night and a major portion of Sunday, it's understandable that Padilla still thought he was drunk on Monday. Listen, I said, did you think you were going to pull it off this time? Well, he brushed the jet black mop from his dark eyes. I can't say I knew for certain I was going to beat all those other guys, but you can say I made up my mind whoever stopped me was going to be one hell of a monster. How did you feel standing next to the biggest guy in bodybuilding at this time? You mean Gronkowski? Yeah, he placed third. What a monster. I just didn't think about him. That was the best way. How do you feel about having been declared Mr. America in 1977? Hey, don't expect me to pull a Robbie Robinson and tell you I felt sorry for the other guys. Bullshit. I'm in this game to win. Otherwise, I would not bother to bust my balls training, dieting, and all. i just go around having a great time. The way I see it, winning makes Robbie feel as bad as he tells us. He should give up competing altogether. The way he looks right now, there's a whole lot of bad experiences ahead of him. I asked Danny Padilla what lay ahead for him. Well, he said, it's back to work again. I don't mean at the gym. I mean back to work making a living. I have a few business problems that i got to sort out, and the minute that's taken care of, it'll be me preparing for the Mr. Universe. I hope to God McAway makes it to Nimes this year because I'm developing an insatiable appetite for winning. Why did you keep your Mr. America thing so quiet? I mean, most of us thought you wouldn't be in it this year. Well, last year I made a lot of noise. I had a lot of people place a load of faith in me, and then I let them down by turning up the show in New York way too heavy. Man, I was a butterball. I can tell you at this point, now that it's all over, I felt so ashamed of the way I let Joe Weeder down. He'd been pushing for me. I knew he was in my corner. Ah, sweet revenge. Will Danny be returning to California to prepare for the universe? Not the way he sees it. It's a myth that you have to come out here to train. It doesn't matter where you are. If you have peace of mind, if you're training regularly and hard, you can whip yourself into winning shape anywhere. I have to admit, however, that coming out here for just two weeks before a big contest gives me sort of a mental edge. You know, I get the chance to compare myself with the competition. And you mustn't forget the sun. I can't say for certain that I'll be back here for a while, though. The guys out in California are too set on winning contests at all costs to have time for friendships. Before he left, I asked Danny who he thought this year's big winners would be. The answers flew at me. Hell, I'm going to be the lightweight champion and the, well, I guess I should keep my mouth shut about the Olympia, but, uh, well, Robbie has got to be the man to beat, but don't be surprised if Ken Waller pulls a big surprise. I've never seen that son of a bitch more serious about his training. He's been bombing most of the year. And at this point, he weighs 246, and he's not fat. That mother has abs. Yes, abdominals. And he's dieting, too, something he's never done before. Yeah, he could surprise a lot of people. I'm not putting out any money on the outcome of the Olympia. On the other hand, you just cannot dismiss Frank Zane. On stage, the guy is magic. If he turns up in top shape, he could have set some plans. One thing he's got on his side, and that's sentiment. A lot of people won't forget Zane has been having a go at the Olympia for something like five years. He came close to winning last year. A lot of people felt he should have won then, and they'll be there again shouting and rooting for their idol. No, I'm not taking any bets on the Olympia. One last question. Now that Franco Colombo has taken himself out of the arena, do you see yourself as taking his place as the best short man in the world? Danny looked at me and winked. Then he said, is that all Franco was, the best short man? Well, I don't know about taking his place, but you never know. Indeed. All right. And let's do one more. This was this was from Lou Ferrigno who got the call to play the Hulk right before the 1977 Mr. Olympia. As you remember Lou was in California all year. He moved to California from New York at the beginning of 1977 and he was training all year to go in the Mr. Olympia contest. He missed it in 1976. Of course he took 3rd in 1975 the year they filmed Pumping Iron to Arnold and Serge Bruhn. And I think he was kind of tired of bodybuilding at the time. I think he was going to give it up. But then he came back in 77, trained for a solid year, was in amazing shape, the best shape of his life. Who knows how he would have done. And then right before he got the call to play the Hulk. So this is an article in the December 1977 issue of Muscle Builder Magazine, where he talks about this decision. And the name of the article is called Mr. Olympia or the Hulk. The powerful pull of careers takes its toll on top bodybuilders. After a solid year of searing training for the Mr. Olympia contest, the movies beckon Big Lou and fate emerges the victor. By Lou Fruit. This has been one of the most difficult decisions I've ever made in my life. It has always been my dream to one day become Mr. Olympia. From the very first time I saw Arnold on stage, I've continued to work towards that goal. I've gathered some credits along the way. First, the Mr. America title, then the Mr. Universe twice. I came to California last year to train under the direction of Joe Weider for an assault on the 1977 Mr. Olympia title. Given this wonderful opportunity, I've had great confidence I could win the big one in Columbus, Ohio. I've gained both size and definition this past year as my recent muscle builder cover shot and exercise pictures with the many training articles have shown. Now I'm both happy and sad. Fate has thrust me into a good news, bad news situation. At the time when all the fences were down and I was heading full bore for the October Mr. Olympia contest, I'm offered this fantastic starring role in a new TV series called The Hulk. I play The Hulk. The Hulk, in this cinematic pretense, is the transmogrification of one Dr. David Banner into a powerful, green-tinted, fugitive-type creature who corrects injustices on the lamb because nobody can stand his looks. Well, the makeup job alone sometimes starts before dawn, and I have worked around the clock and underwater scenes. I've had to get up at 3 a.m. in the morning at times to get in my workout. Work hours are long and grueling, and it has wrought havoc on my double-split training routine. If I attempt to do everything, I have no time left for sleep. I guess I'm the luckiest guy alive to be given two breaks like this in a year. I would love to give everything I have to both of them, but I know I can't. The initial 90-minute pilot film that I did proved to be so good, CBS opened the stops for a series and a whole new world of movie stardom for this frustrated Mr. Olympia contender. It has been a hard decision. Training for the Mr. Olympia can be one of the most brutal, punishing jobs on Earth. All year, I've been training twice a day, pampering myself emotionally and mentally for this fierce ordeal. My goal was etched on my brain. I knew I had to outdo myself to face the likes of Frank Zane, Robbie Robinson, and other greats I knew were closing in for the kill. I made no mention of my dilemma until the initial pilot film was completed. Although it upset my training, I still had plenty of time to train, if I were not interrupted. As you know, movie companies make pilot films to test the feasibility of projecting the story into a TV series. Well, the Hulk got over real big, and as I write this, I'm in between takes on the second 90-minute segment. As for myself, I might have flipped a coin to tell me which way to go, but I feel I have moral obligations. First to Joe Weeder, who lavished time, money, and care on me in California. To my father, who could have used me in our training equipment business in New York, and who said to me on parting, whatever you do, don't disappoint Joe Weeder. And to my beloved fans themselves, who anticipate seeing me with as much excitement as I experience performing for them. My father, Matt, has no issues with it, and immediately tells me to speak to Joe before I do anything. Believe me, I'm scared when I go to Joe Weeder. My honor is at stake, and I'll do anything he says at this point. Joe, benign sage, smiles and puts his hand on me. Lou, you should take care of your career and financial future. Do the Hulk, of course. And I hear you offer a starring role in Sylvester Stallone's next picture, Hell's Kitchen. Good. I suggest you continue to train hard, So when the public sees you in the Hulk, they will truly see how phenomenal and powerful you are. On the advice of Joe Weider, I'm doing the Hulk. Regretfully, I say that I will not be competing in the 1977 Mr. Olympia contest. However, the cinematography is showing me at my best, I'm happy to say, and that will be a great boost to the sport of bodybuilding. Living rooms throughout the nation will become aware of super muscularity this coming year. Though I became a movie star and I may make a small fortune, I shall light candles to my first great love, bodybuilding. I am a perfectionist. I would not want to enter the Mr. Olympia contest in any condition less than my very best. Joe Weider understands and respects my position. In the movies, you can get away with it. In the Mr. Olympia contest created by Joe Weider himself to bring together the greatest on earth in the peak of condition, never. I don't want to wait until two weeks before the contest to mention this. People might think I was chicken, that I was afraid to compete. I've been working 15 hours a day, and the way my training suffers, I wouldn't do the contest justice. Arnold, for example, had several months to train after finishing the movie Stay Hungry, and he managed to get in shape and win his final Mr. Olympia contest in 1975. Let's face it. If you try to do both at the same time, you not only blow the contest, but the film also, because you're all worn out. Joe Weider thinks the very same way about it that I do. Will I ever train for another Mr. Olympia? Well, let me say bodybuilding always comes first. If I never do anything else, I'll always train hard. If I have the time, I will be back for next year's Mr. Olympia. I hope Mr. Schwarzenegger returns also because I would like to settle any claim on who is the world's greatest bodybuilder. Remember, competition is thrilling, and you are never too old to compete. Bill Pearl and Jim Morris won their Mr. Universe titles past the age of 40. Cheers are music to an athlete's ears. There's no such thing as retiring from bodybuilding. It becomes part of your life. Bodybuilding put me where I am today. It put me in movies. It changed me from an introvert to an extrovert. It made Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's an in thing. It has powerful meaning, both as a panacea and a sport. I will continue to train while I make these films, one, two, three hours a day, whatever spare time permits. I want to stay in touch with my fans and with Muscle Builder readers by giving exhibitions and posing for pictures. Arnold, for the most part, has discontinued that. He's let his body weight drop from 235 to 215, and he puts most of his energy into his movie career. I doubt if I'll ever let myself go below 265, because then I would be forfeiting muscle, and that would detract from my presence. I'm certain my films will help bodybuilding immensely, and the recent production called The Strongest Man in the World a sort of takeoff on the popular superstars competition last year, where eight of the strongest men competed in ten different strength events, and during which the mighty Franco Colombo was seriously injured. I proved to the world that bodybuilders are as strong as they look. This fall, you will see these events on television. In the Hulk series, I do all kinds of powerful things. The camera picks up my mass and definition in ways that I could never show it on stage, in real action. Bodybuilding fans and everybody else will love it. CBS is excited and feels it has a good thing. I will stay with Joe Weeder. He brought me to California, put me on the payroll, trained me. If it weren't for Joe Weeder, bodybuilding wouldn't be where it is today. And if it weren't for bodybuilding, I wouldn't be where I am today. Joe Weider has directly responsible for my career. People hesitate to give him the credit he deserves as trainer of champions. They don't understand what he's done. I do, and I will give him full credit. He has had faith in me, and I have faith in him. I will never let him down. On November 11th, 8 p.m., you will see the pilot film of The Hulk. Stay home and see it. I hope I made the right decision. During filming of The Hulk, I will do everything I can to promote bodybuilding. On the inevitable talk shows, be assured, our game will get everything I can give it. Stay with me, everyone. We will have a great time with this great sport. Wow. Good article. Yeah, that was the decision Lou had to make. I'm sure in his own way, he kind of still regrets it to this day because he left the sport when he was young, when he was at his peak. He was ready to win. He was in amazing shape for that 1977 Mr. Olympia. And then he did not do it. But, of course he made the right decision as far as the money goes, but I think in his heart of heart, he's a bodybuilder and I think it kind of still bothers him a little bit because you can't go back, right? You can't go back in time. Once that time is gone, it's over. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed these six articles I read. It was awesome reading them. I love the year 1977 in the bodybuilding world. It was such a great time in bodybuilding. Some great articles, some great contests, great, great time in our sport. I think it was really the peak of the sport. That was also the year that pumping iron came out and, Arnold's book, uh, Education of a Bodybuilder, came out. Just an amazing time. All right, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast. If you have any comments or emails you want to share with me, just send them to natural Olympia at gmail.com. Special thanks to our Patreon sponsors who continue to sponsor the Bodybuilding Legends podcast each month. If you're interested in doing so yourself, you can check out the link below or go to our official website, bodybuildinglegendsshow.com. And check out the Patreon link in the upper right-hand corner. Until then, keep training hard, stay safe, and we'll see you guys next week. Take care.